56 million. 56 million. That's the number of people who are expected to die in 2016. 13.2 million. That's the number that isn't expected or estimated. Those who have already died in 2016. 4,100, that's the number of people they estimate have already died since we've gathered in this room and we've been singing about the resurrection. And 40 is the number, apparently, that have died in merely the amount of time it's taken me to share these stats. Friends, those are punishing numbers. Punishing numbers. As one quipped, 100% of us will die And that percentage cannot go up. Any honest assessment of life, any honest assessment requires us to face the crushing inevitability of death. We can't deny it, for it is unavoidable. We can seek to delay it, but that just prolongs the inevitable. We can seek to stoically embrace it, you know, hemlock in hand, Saying death no more than a kind of turning us over from time to eternity. And yet I don't think we can escape the fact that death still feels unnatural to us. We want to assuage ourselves and we want to say that it's natural. That it's part of the circle of life to death and then back to life. But is it our destiny to merely become fertilizer for the earth? Is that all that there is to our lives and to our bodies? Do they simply rot, picked apart by maggots and other unseemly creatures as we reluctantly join that cold terrestrial reservoir of carbon? Is that all there is to death? What happens when we die? Is it nothingness? Or do we rise to encounter some great perhaps? How are we to make sense of death? I wonder this morning, how do you? How do you make sense of death? You know, I know that seems like an awfully dark way to open an Easter message. But friends, you will never understand Easter Unless you first understand what the Bible teaches about death. And if you've ever read the Bible, you know that the Bible actually doesn't shy away from such questions. Christianity deals honestly and straightforwardly with death. You could even say the Bible is a book about death, about its origins, and about its final destination. Well, what do we learn? What does the Bible teach us? Well, for that, I want us to to turn back into our Bibles to the series we've been going through for the past number of weeks to the to the book of First Corinthians, chapter fifteen. And if you're visiting with us, uh, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles and the seat back before you. You should be able to find First Corinthians fifteen on page nine sixty one there in your uh, there in those seat back Bibles, page nine sixty one. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, if you come this morning and don't own one. You are welcome to take that Bible with you. 
I'm serious. That is our Easter gift to you. We want you to take it because we want you to be reading, to be engaging, to be learning, and to come back and to learn with us. Love for you to do that. So if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take the one in that seat back before you. And again, if you're, if you're new to a Bible, you'll find it again, 961, and those bold numbers... Those are the chapter numbers, as I talk about chapter 15, and those small superscript numbers, those are the verse numbers. So if you're just joining us, we're in week 12 of a 13-week study through the book of 1 Corinthians, a book that's written by the Apostle Paul to this young church in Corinth in around 51 AD, and it was a church that had lost its way. It was racked by division and by moral dissolution, by various forms of narcissism and elitism. And the lives and the gatherings of these Christians had become a circus of sin. So bad, Paul said, that it would just be better if, in fact, they didn't meet. They were a liability to Christ, Paul says. Christian churches will never be perfect places, but there should be some piety among us as we gather, and it wasn't, it seemed, happening there in Corinth. And so he writes these First Corinthians, and his basic message is that the character of their gatherings is to increasingly reflect the character of their God. That's the message of the book. And by chapter 15, we're nearing the end of his letter, and as so often in life, beliefs Well, they eventually are reflected and borne out in our own behavior. Ideas have consequences for good or for ill, as the tragic events over the past week in Brussels have reminded us. And it seems that what the Corinthians were believing about death is actually affecting how they were living to the point where Paul fears that they may have believed in vain. And if you've got your Bible open, look down there to chapter 15, verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 12. This is sort of the heart of the issue. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised of the dead. It's not that the Corinthians denied any notion of an afterlife. No, they just denied that there would be a body in that life. Not denying the afterlife, just denying the fact that there would actually be a body in that life. The idea of a bodily resurrection was absurd to Greeks. It was to ancients. Everyone knows that dead people don't rise. They cannot rise. They can't come back to life. You know, sometimes we approach the Bible as enlightened skeptics. And we think we're more enlightened than those who have gone before us. We can suffer from a kind of chronological arrogance as we come to the scriptures. But the ancients had just as much difficulty with the resurrection of the body as we moderns do. To the Greeks, it was a grotesque idea. It was preposterous that these half-decomposed bodies would be shuffling about like some version of the walking dead. You know, speaking scientifically, it was just gross. And thus these Corinthians, that being their culture, began to abandon the very notion of a bodily resurrection. And in doing so, they had just removed one of the critical linchpins of the Christian faith. And so Paul takes them back to the basics in 1 Corinthians 15. And the first thing he does, and this will serve as our first point this morning, is he he reminds them first that Christianity is a message. 
It goes back to the beginning. Christianity is a message. Look down with me to verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Christianity begins with news, news that must be shared. It's a message, a message that must be heard and received, a message that has power, power to hold us, power to continually transform us, so long as we hold fast to it, lest our believing be in vain. Friends, Paul's saying right there that saving faith, genuine faith is persevering faith. It's not enough to simply have once heard a moving message and walked an aisle. It's not enough to have once made a profession of faith, but that profession of faith had little transforming power to it. The gospel changes people radically from the inside out. And if it hasn't changed you, then you probably haven't been believing in the gospel. Well, what was this gospel? What was this good news that Paul preached? Picking up in in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, the heart of the gospel is actually right there in verses 3 to 5. It was one of the earliest sort of Christian creedal statements. And it was based off those four verbs. Christ died, was buried, then was raised, and then he appeared. And this, Paul says, he says, this is of first importance. Now, if you've come this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian... You wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, at least in any sort of faithful sense of the word. Maybe a friend brought you, or maybe, you know, listen, it's Easter. You do the annual pilgrimage, and and you come to church. Well, these four verbs right here, died, buried, raised, and appeared, they compose the very heart of the Christian message. Christianity, it's not about good advice. It's not ten tips toward successful living. It's not a list of rules or morality. It's not a political philosophy. It is not finally about what we do, but what God has done in history 
through Jesus Christ. Christ died. Why? For our sins, Paul says. And the message of Christianity begins right there with something that's not always obvious to us. And that's that, you know, God and I, we're not okay. We like to think we're good with God. We like to think that we can live lives as we please. And because God's loving, of course, he'll understand and he'll accept us. And while God is loving, he is at the same time, he's also just. And our sins, which is just the Bible's way of saying that propensity to do what we want as opposed to what God wants. That stubborn insistence that God bend himself to our desires as opposed to us bending ourselves toward his desires. Right? That's just what the Bible calls sin. That's the heart of the problem. That's why this world that we live in is broken. We think we know better than God. That's why there's pain and suffering, why there's divorce and death. And as, as we live in this world, we want justice. We see the need for it, so long as it's not going to be meted out on us. And so the message of Christianity begins with the Son of God taking upon himself the judgment of God for our sins. Christ bore on that cross the penalty that we deserve. He served as a substitute And he was buried, we read, he was buried in a tomb, dark and dank. A dead man was buried until on the morning of that third day, he was raised. That stone was rolled away and he was raised to life and the impossible happened. A dead man actually walked out of the tomb. You you can find, metaphorically speaking, footsteps that go into every grave, You don't see them come back out. Except for Christ. A dead man came back to life. And he wasn't merely a ghost. He wasn't a heavenly apparition. For the text says he appeared. And not just to one. He appeared to many people. To hundreds as proof. He had defeated that last great enemy of mankind. And this. Notice the Bible says this this death of Christ. it, It wasn't some accident. Christ wasn't some hapless victim caught between the vices of Jewish jealousy and Roman cruelty. Notice his death and his resurrection on the third day was what? It was in accordance with the scriptures. It was foretold in Isaiah 53, in Hosea 6, in Jonah, even all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. It's why when Peter preached the good news in Acts 2, he said Christ's death was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But of course, nor was this death and barrier and resurrection, it wasn't some fanciful story conjured up by a bunch of religious quacks conspiring to sort of form some sacred fiction. Why does Paul go on to list all those appearances that we read? Well, because he's trying and he's seeking to ground the resurrection in history. He's presenting it as a historical fact. It's not some pie-in-the-sky theology. The first followers of Christ, they weren't some religious hucksters and charlatans. Paul's saying, check with them. I'm giving you lists here. Check with them. Interview them. Talk to them. Pursue their stories. They'll corroborate. 
they'll tell the same thing. People, different places, at different times, from different walks of life, all attesting to the very same fact. That there was someone in a grave, and yet he was no longer there. You know, friends, so often Christianity is presented as belief in opposition to or in spite of facts. But the Christian faith doesn't, it doesn't run from facts, whether or not they're historic facts or scientific facts. Christianity embraces them. Facts are actually foundational to our faith. Facts is what give rise to faith. And that faith is what gives rise to feeling. And in the Bible, that order is critical. Fact giving rise to faith, giving rise to feeling. Sometimes we, we like to think that, that the facts are those things and the faith are those things that should be governed by what we feel. And if something feels right, then we assume it must be right. But the Bible, that just inverts the biblical order. It's never a healthy way to go. We want to let facts determine our faith and let that give rise to the appropriate response. But notice too, Paul's saying, listen, this message, I didn't make it up either. He delivered, verse 3, what I also received. Paul didn't invent it. It's not that Jesus preached some universal message of, of love and forgiveness, and then Paul came around many years later, and he turned it into a religion of, of dogmas and cold doctrines. Well, of course, nor was the Christian message developed in the centuries after Christ. In some seedy backroom deals like you'll hear on NPR or PBS specials. No, we're just a few years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is preaching the very same thing he received. The very same message Christians have always believed. Established right there at the get-go. And so he says, whether it was I or they, those who came before. So we preach, verse 11, and so you believed. This is the gospel message. Death, burial, resurrection, right, and manifestation, appearing. And it doesn't change. It was the same in Paul's day. It's the same in our own day. We can't upgrade it. We can't enhance it. We can't improve upon this message. We honor this message by believing it. And then by going and sharing it with others. Well, I wonder this morning, do you believe this message? Do you believe it? You know, if not, why not? I mean, honestly, ask yourself, what better offer are you waiting for? What better offer could you wait for than the God who has come in flesh, condescended, bearing your sin on his behalf, dying on the cross in your place so that you might be reconciled to God for eternity? I mean, you can show me a better offer and, you know, I might just walk right off the stage. Friends, there's not one. There's not a better offer to us. Repent of your sins. Confess with your mouth. Believe us as Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. You can be saved this morning, this Easter morning. I can't think of a better time to believe in the gospel. And if you want to think more about that, if you want to talk to someone, I'll be down here at the end of the service. You're welcome to come up and talk with me. There'll be people at the back doors. Love to talk with you more about the good news of the gospel. All right, Christianity, at its core, it's a message. But a second thing we need to see, it is a message. But secondly, it's a message that hinges 
upon the bodily resurrection and reign of Christ. It is a message, yes, but secondly, a message that hinges upon the bodily resurrection and reign of Christ. That's what Paul is highlighting in verses 12 all the way through verses 34. Let me pick up chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul's doing here is he's setting up sort of a series of theological dominoes. And he's saying tip one, namely the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the whole edifice of the Christian faith comes tumbling down. He's saying if there's, if there's no bodily resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised, which means, verse 14, that our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. It means what I'm doing right now, I'm just wasting very precious oxygen. We're wasting earth's resources, all this electricity and the sound, all of your time and resources, all a colossal waste, a laughable waste, if Christ actually didn't bodily rise from the dead. But it gets worse, he says. Not only that, verse 17, you are still in your sins. Which means, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep, I mean, that's a euphemism for death in the scriptures, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished They've been lost. They've been judged and done in. Paul has no notion of a spiritualized resurrection. You know, a resurrection that you can mythologize away, where the point is not actually that there's this historical event that happened, but the point is really the meaning behind that event. What do we learn about Christ from that event, even if it didn't happen? Paul's got no sense of that here in 1 Corinthians 15. If it didn't actually happen in history, then Christianity is all a farce and our faith is futile. Christianity hinges upon the central fact of the bodily resurrection. It is the axis on which the story of the whole world turns. If Christ has risen, then nothing else matters. But if he hasn't, then nothing matters, and we might as well go home, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Which means if you've never given serious thought to whether or not Christ actually rose from the dead, you must do that. You must do that. For the evidence actually is substantial. Now, conspiracy theorists will say it was all one big hoax. You know, but just think of that reasonably. I mean, how many people do you know who would be willing to die themselves, to watch their families suffer, all for something that they actually knew was an elaborate hoax? 
maybe one person might be willing to do that, but hundreds of people all conspiring together, some great elaborate hoax, that's pretty hard to believe. What's the likelihood that just one of them among the scores involved wouldn't have spilled the whole beans on the deal and wouldn't have said, yeah, it was actually all a big trick? The reality is, if your favorite Messiah got crucified, then you either went home or you just got a new Messiah. You didn't dream up some cockamamie scheme where a poor carpenter who was crucified as a criminal of the state and then scandalously rises three days later from the grave is then met first by two women of questionable reputation who can't even testify in a court of law. You just never draft that story up. It smells like history. It smells like something that actually would have happened. You know, others would say, well, no, he just appeared to die. He didn't really die. But of course, the Romans had perfected the art of crucifixion. The likelihood that with this Jewish carpenter, they had kind of messed up. Well, that's pretty small. Also pretty unlikely that a half-dead Jesus is able to roll back the stone and then take out this sort of Roman special ops team. A little hard to believe. Point is, there's just, there is actually, if you stop and stare at it and think about it hard, there is a surprising amount of evidence for the resurrection. It's why, actually, when you read early Jewish apologists who rejected Jesus, they actually didn't reject the resurrection. There, was, there were too many witnesses. There was too much evidence. They didn't deny that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't deny the event. They merely denied what that event meant, what it said about Jesus. They denied that it said he was the son of God. It's actually why one of the greatest atheist philosophers in the last century, Anthony Flew, he honestly had to admit, quotes, that the evidence for the resurrection is better than claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. Now, Flew would go on to eventually renounce atheism, though he never became a Christian. I think former law professor J.N.D. Anderson out of London University captured it well when he wrote, either the resurrection is infinitely more than a beautiful story or else it is infinitely less. If it is true, then it is the supreme fact of history. And to fail to adjust one's life to its implications means irreparable loss. If it is not true, if Christ has not risen, then Christianity is all a fraud foisted on the world by deluded simpletons. I think he's right. I think he's exactly right. There's just no notion that you sometimes hear of, of Christianity, well, it's, it's, it's good as a crutch. That, that, that's why we should all believe in Christianity. It helps us in some way get through our problems and struggles. Paul says, nope, not at all. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if that's all it is, a crutch through this life, he says we are the most to be pitied. If this world is all there is, then we are martyrs to an illusion. If it's merely a panacea, we are the most pathetic people on earth, Paul says. We are might as well. We could just go home, kick up our feet, watch some basketball. We can milk life for all it's worth if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In other words, if death is the end... Paul's saying you better make this your best life because it is your only life. 
If you jump forward and look to verse 32, that's what he means when he says in verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? I think he's speaking metaphorically there. If he fought with those powers and principalities there that opposed him in Ephesus, what do I gain? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But then if you go back and look at verse 20, but, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I mentioned the Bible uses that word sleep as a euphemism for death because one day the Christian, the one in Christ, will, as it were, wake up from death as if it has been but a moment of sleep and rest. It's a reminder for the Christian that death actually isn't the end, but death is only the beginning. We're going to read on verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You hear the echoes of Psalm 8 that Kevin read earlier. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subject to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Friends, don't miss What Paul's doing is he's giving us a window into the future. And it is a glorious vision of the future. Christ's resurrection, Paul says, it's the first fruits. It's the down payment. It's the preview. It's the first installment. It's the beginning of what all of us in Christ will one day experience. While graveyards, while they can remind us of the brevity of life, The resurrection ensures for us the brevity of death. For first, he says, Christ has been raised. And then his resurrection ensures that he actually will return and he will come again. And then he says, at his coming, all those in Christ will be raised. And then at that point, Christ will destroy sin and death. And he's going to hand the kingdom over to the Father. That is your future if you're a Christian. Certain death means certain glory. We may loathe the thought of death, and that's natural. We can even be frightened of death, frightened of the process, frightened of the pain, frightened of the the burden that our death might place upon loved ones. But the Christian never has to finally fear what's on the other side of death. Paul's given us a preview, and if you are in Christ, it is a spectacular preview. It's a world where Christ rules, a world where the pain of broken bodies, the unfaithfulness of spouses, the duplicity of friends, 
the sorrows and disappointments of this life, none of those things will have the last word. For he will conquer all and he will restore all to the Father. Oh, my friend, Christianity and all of history actually culminates in the exaltation of God and not us. History culminates, Paul says, in the exaltation of God and not us. And because he is good, that is beautiful news. That is good news. He is infinitely good. That is the best news that you and I could ever hear. But friend, if you're not in Christ, Paul uses that image of two sort of representative heads. Those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. If you're in Adam, if you're still trusting in yourself, not in Christ. Don't presume upon Christ's delay. Christ does not reign passively from afar. He's not some impotent sovereign. Christ will have this world for his own. He will destroy every authority and power and rule that is set against him. One day, every one of us will bow the knee to Christ and we will either do so in joy or we will do so in angry resignation. But make no mistake, it will happen because none of us here are finally sovereign. This world is not yours. This world is not mine. This world is Christ's world and he will have it. And he will give it back to his father. And he will destroy everything in opposition to him. Because as him who is perfectly good, anything in opposition to him must not be good. And if he has the power to rise from the dead, then there's nothing that you or I can do to stop him. He came once in grace. He will come again in judgment. Trust him for his grace. He delays, he waits, why? That you might come to him. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, before we move on from these verses, Paul's reference in verse 29, which I didn't read 29 to 34, but Paul's reference there in 29 to baptism on behalf of the dead, it's, it seems rather obscure. You know, if you read it this week, it's, it's hard to know exactly what is Paul talking about there. His point seems to be that, that the Corinthians' own practice, well, that's, that's not consistent with their belief. It belies their belief. They say they don't believe in a resurrection from the dead, and yet they're baptizing those on behalf of the dead. And I think what he's saying is he's saying, in other words, why in the world do you baptize someone into newness of life if you actually don't think there's any life finally after death to live for? What's the point? I think that's just the point. I think that's part of what Paul's saying there. All right, but that brings us to our third point. Yeah, Christianity is a message, and it is a message that hinges upon the bodily resurrection and reign of Christ. And thus, thirdly, it promises our bodily resurrection to eternal life. That's what we see in verses 35 through the end of the chapter. Yes, it's a message. It hinges on the bodily resurrection and reign of Christ, and thus promises our bodily resurrection to eternal life. He picks up verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? How are they raised? With what kind of a body do they come? 
know, the Greeks tended to view death as liberation from the prison of the physical body. But Christianity has always actually had a high regard for the body, a high regard for the created world. It's why Christians and Jews didn't burn their dead, but actually buried the dead. It was out of deference to the body, out of respect for the body, out of anticipation for the resurrection. But whereas the Old Testament had just a few references to the resurrection, a whole idea of bodily resurrection, that was entirely foreign to Greek thought. So it's natural for them to say, well, what kind of body is it going to be? Begs that question. Is it going to be that half-rotted out body that comes out of the ground? Is it bone and dust and hair? I mean, what an unpleasant thought. Heaven populated by some horde of the mangled dead. It's a grotesque image. You can understand why they would have the question, something out of a horror movie. They're saying, you know, what kind of resurrection is this going to be? They couldn't fathom how it was possible, which is why Paul's going to go on. And he's going to use that image of a seed that's planted in the ground. And he's saying, just as that seed is buried in the ground, and out of that ground rises something glorious and beautiful, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body that he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So he's saying, just as God has made everything fit for its habitat, animals for land, fish for the sea, birds for the air, so there will be a resurrection body fit for a resurrection existence. Picking up in verse 42, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. You know, this past Friday marked uh, the death of Flannery O'Connor, a very famous sort of southern novelist. And she once wrote, For me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, destruction are the suspension of those laws. I am always astonished at the emphasis that Christians rightly put on the body. It is not the souls, he says, that will rise, but the body glorified. Friends, Paul's saying, he's not saying, that the resurrection body is some patched up version of the body you currently have. Nor is it, he's saying, merely some turbocharged kind of Captain America version of the body. It's not that either. While it will bear some resemblance to our existing and current bodies, it will also be altogether different and glorious. It's why he goes on to write in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. See, fundamental to Paul's thought is that 
the afterlife will be far more glorious than this life. And therefore, it requires a body that's suitable for that glory. And God, he says, will clothe us with that body. We won't merely be sort of sporting a new dress by Vera Wang, right? Not merely a new Armani suit, but he says we're going to be dressed and clothed with a body fit for the glories of heaven. We will no longer be entombed in this body of death, but we will be tricked out in a body fit for everlasting life. Now, exactly what this body is like, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information. But I think C.S. Lewis was on to something when he wrote, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most unimpressive person you talk to may one day be a creature, which that if you saw him now, you would be strongly tempted to bow down and worship. Well, how is that possible? Because verse 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? These new bodies only possible because of the victory that comes through Christ. Because Christ came and he kicked down death's door. A door that had been barred since the very first death back in the garden. And he has come. And he has evicted the king of death. And he has come for those to rescue all of them who would wish to be saved and to be set free. Oh friend, just imagine for a moment what that day will be like. Imagine for a moment what that day will be like. No more aches and pains. No more ice packs or ibuprofen. No antibiotics. No need for all those vitamins. No orthotics. No crutches. No chiropractors. No more glasses. No more contacts. No more LASIK. No Botox. No more trips to the pharmacy, no vaccinations, no Ebola, no Zika, no cancer, no allergies, no common cold, no graveyards and headstones. They don't line and litter heaven's landscape. No ERs or ambulance or even hospitals, nurses. You're going to have to find a new profession when it comes to heaven. Why? Because death has been defeated and we've been changed in a moment in the blink of an eye god will clothe our mortality in immortality but it's not just our bodies there'll be no more tornado warnings like we had the other night you got little kids and you're trying to figure out what to do that was a first for us no tsunamis no floods no, no paralyzing storms No droughts, no need to worry about the polar ice caps or two degrees centigrade. No weeds, no ticks, no no pesky blood-sucking mosquitoes. None of those things in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's even still bigger. Because Paul's saying the war against sin is over. It's over. Our anger, our greed, our lust, our lack of love, our addictions, our anxieties, all of our insecurities. 
the dark clouds of your daily depression all rolled back like that stone that was rolled back at the resurrection. Friends, that is a glorious day. What a glorious day. Realize that's, I've just described what won't be. I haven't even begun to describe what will be. Imagine what it will be like. Imagine the sunsets. Imagine work without exhaustion, labor without toil. Imagine a relationship with God without fear or guilt or doubts. And we can't imagine it. But my Christian friend, Paul says, that's your future. That is your future because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has risen from the grave, everything has changed. And it's why we can legitimately speak of death this morning as merely sleep. Because one day we too will rise. Mortality has suffered her fatal wound. Immortality has risen and taken the throne. And even now, as I speak, he is working to place all things under his feet. Well, I have to conclude. Listen, we we try to console ourselves with the fact that death is natural. It comes to us all. It's a normal course of life. It's, you know, part of nature's own recycling program. So we present our dead in ornate coffins dressed in their best, made up and all as if in perfect peace and rest. I've even read this week there's this trend toward happy funerals. Now, one would think that's the epitome of an oxymoron, right? A happy funeral. But I read it this week in the UK. Monty Python's always look on the bright side of life has replaced Verity's Requiem as the most popular song played at memorial services. (laughs) Yet try as we might, we all know that death is unnatural, It's not normal. It's violent and cruel. It preys upon the old. It ruthlessly comes to men and women in the prime of their life, leaving gaping holes in families that cannot be filled. Even at our birth, death does but stand aside but a little. And every day he looks towards us and he muses somewhat to himself, whether that day or the next, he will draw nigh to us. Christianity gets it. And it's the only religion with an adequate explanation for it. And it confronts death and it conquers death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we don't need to worry a lick about what he said. But if he did rise from the dead, we would be absolute fools not to accept all that he said. In the musical score that is our lives, death will have one of the closing notes, but it doesn't need to be the last note of your own life. For on that future resurrection morning, that note of death will be silenced by the welcoming summons of our Savior's trumpet, and we shall rise, never to fall again.
that can be your Easter hope this morning. Is it your hope? Will it be your hope? Let's pray. And Father, we give you praise for the glorious truths here in 1 Corinthians 15. Lord, more than we can adequately cover. And yet at the same time, all that we need to know and hear. We give you praise for the death, burial, resurrection, and appearing of our Lord and Savior. Who has secured our victory. Who lost all that we might once gain all. Let me give you praise for Christ in his name. Amen.